Hello and welcome to DIT ON, the podcast brought to you by the Royal Naval Association. I'm your host, Jenna Brodie, and today's guest is Richard Gwilliam, a veteran from the Royal Navy who served for a whopping 28 years, initially as an air engineer and later in his career transferred to intelligence officer. Since leaving the Navy, he has started his own company, GeoElect, of which he is the Q and the co-founder, uh, which we will get into later on in the in the episode. So, Richard, welcome. Awesome to have you here. Thank you. Great to be here. Thanks, Jenna. Oh, no, you're welcome. You're welcome. It's great to catch up. So we actually met, not last year, was it, obviously, because that's when all the COVID kicked off. I think it was the year before at Barclays. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um, 2019 yeah that's right it was when um we came in to um give our presentation you were there for part of the fintech piece weren't you yeah that's yeah right, yeah so that that feels like ages ago now actually when you think about everything that's happened over the last two years so let's dive into your career so you joined in 1990 yeah. as an aircraft and had you aircraft engineer had you always wanted to join the rn I did. Um, I think I joined at a time as a kid, most of the, you know, it was like a sausage factory. Kids tended to sort of go out because Birmingham was a big manufacturing kind of hub, if you like. You know, we had British Leyland cars when we had a car industry. It was like people filed out into sort of um, engineering and, and sort of the, the, the car industry. And it just it wasn't something that I wanted to do. Um, and I joined the Sea Cadets when I was younger, uh, and that kind of that was the reason why I sort of wanted to join the Navy. It gave me a different perspective to maybe some of my friends. So yeah, I wanted to be in the Navy as far back as I can remember, really, from probably the age of ten. Oh wow! And what age did you join then? Uh, I was eighteen um, when I eventually joined, but that was because um, I tried to join at sixteen, but um, to get into the air engineering world. I had to wait a period that they just weren't recruiting at that time. So it took me a period of time to get into it. Oh, cool. And then an air engineer was always the plan. You didn't want to be a stoker or weapons engineer. No, not at all. It was the aircraft that appealed to me. My uncle was actually an air engineer as well. And I think he had um, more of an influence on me as well, just from being a kid, being around aircraft. It just seemed really exciting, you know. So, uh, yeah, the air engineering world was something that really appealed to me. Yeah. And where was your first drafting then, once you finished all your training, on on what aircraft? So um, I finished at Daedalus um, in, uh, over the Christmas period of 90 and then joined Portland, um, RNS Portland. Uh, and my first squadron was A15 Squadron working on uh, Lynx aircraft, Mark III aircraft. Oh, wow. And what was it like, your first job? How did you find it? I loved it. I loved Portland. Um, I loved life on the squadron. Um, they're just the characters were fantastic. The lifestyle was fantastic. Um, it was just an awesome base because Portland then you had sort of flag officer sea training was there. You had a really busy hub of aircraft, but it was just busy in itself with, um, you know, ships undergoing sort of BOST uh, and various different sea training prior to, the, to deployment. So, um, <clears throat> you know, Weymouth was was always a good run ashore as well. So, um, yeah, it was, it was good fun. I loved it. I absolutely loved it. In fact, I'd probably still be in the Navy now if Portland hadn't have closed. Really? 
Yeah, I loved it. Yeah, really did. What's the? I'm just trying to remember the pub there. Was it the Green Shutters? Is that? Yeah, the then? Green Shutters. Yeah, yeah. Next to the Greasy Spoon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's been a well, It's been a while since I've been there, and obviously you as well. So you you were at eight one five Squadron. So what was the role of that squadron to support ships during Boston with aircraft, or did you get to go anywhere? Yeah, so um, it had a bit of a, it was a frontline squadron, but it also had a training component because you had 702 squadron, which was predominantly the, the training squadron for, for the Lynx community. And then 815 and 829 were frontline squadrons, but they still had sort of part four training and training um, components to them. So for me, I was part of the second line team on 815, did all my training, and then my first flight was actually, so I managed to get a couple of trips to, you know, kind of Germany and things like that, you know, with landaways to support various different exercises, but my first kind of um, time on board ship, so the links, those flights, 815 and 829 used to support sort of Leander's, uh, sorry, Leander's frigates and destroyers in that sort of frontline role, so it was small ship flights. Hmm. And uh, so I went from 815 to 829, and then my first flight was um, 208 flight, um, uh, HMS Broadsword. Um, and but yeah, I loved it. It was the best ship I ever had. Um, brilliant crew. You know, my early career was just fantastic. I just, it was just an absolute blast. I was truly blessed to, to serve on great flights with great people, real community spirit. Um, that's probably why I stayed so long, really, living off that. And where did you go on the broadsword? Did you deploy somewhere or? Yeah. Uh, the, my original reason for joining 208 flight is it was originally Gibraltar flight. So I was open to go to Gibraltar, but they uh, they changed it and put it on broadsword. And actually my first deployment was um, to the Adriatic when the former Yugoslavia um, sort of conflict kicked off. So my first um, sort of deployment was out to the Adriatic and supporting the, the operations in, in Yugoslavia, which um, wasn't my favourite part of my career, if I'm honest with you. The, the actual um, deployment was fine, but um, we had um, our sort of R1, uh, Pio Wheeler, um, a great character, unfortunately, was killed um, in, an, in an accident when the petty officer's mess went um, ashore. So that was kind of the sat one of the saddest moments I had in my career but unfortunately on the way back we had a fire on board and we lost two of our lads um two stokers um Tupperware and Tab Hunter um in in, in an engine space fire so although we had a fabulous um crew and, and I look back with really fond memories of that part it was actually the saddest part of my career too and um but it also showed me just how strong the, the, the Royal Navy family was. And, and I just, I've never ever felt anything like it before, how we all came together as a, a, ship, a ship's company. And I'm still in touch with um, Tab's mom today, actually. Uh, sorry, Tupper's mom today. Uh, she lives just down the road from me. Um, so, yeah. Oh my God, that that's awful. I can't imagine that. I mean, I nothing like that ever happened to me, you know, on any ships. I was on. How how did that affect the ship's company? You said you came together, but what was it like on board? It, it was devastating because um, we had um, obviously the death of um, Wheels, as we as he was affectionately known on board, um, and that hit the ship's company hard. And then I think it was probably only about 
maybe eight weeks later, we lost the other two guys. But the ship's company was so close knit and I'd never been on a ship that was that close knit before. Um, and, and everyone took it really hard. You know, it was really, um, yeah, it was a tough, tough time. Um, and one of them things that it changed my whole outlook on life, to be honest, because I was, you know, I was probably, what would I have been then? 93, I'd have been just about 21. Um, and to, to kind of witness and be part of that, um, you know, was just, uh, yeah, it was um, life changing. And I, I, I think from that day forward, I always, you know, just took advantage of everything that I could in life, realizing how easily it could be taken away from you, you know. Um, so, yeah, the, the ship's company were it, it hit them hard, but um, you know they were just such a fabulous guy. The, the, the collections that came back afterwards, I mean, they raised thousands for the families, which it, again was testament to how highly thought of they were and what a great ship's company we had. Yeah, I'm so sorry. That's so awful. I can't. I can't imagine what that must have been like in the families as well, with the, you know, with the guys being away and they wave goodbye to them on the jetty, thinking they'll be waving them back in in a few months when they come back yeah that was the toughest bit actually coming back but uh, yeah sad yeah. times yeah. but you know that, that, that's you know that's life isn't it you know you, you just got to keep moving on and I think that's what the you know my my life in the navy was all about you know you conquer the next thing it's all just keep moving on yeah and what what was the next thing for you after that um, so we, we did that Royal Yacht Guard ship, then we did a deployment out to the West Indies and it was almost like um, that was a, um, you know, a, a kind of treat for, because we'd had such a terrible kind of Adriatic experience. Um, we had seven and a half months in the West Indies and that really lived up to everything that I wanted from the Navy. I mean, that was when the West Indies Guard ship was truly the West Indies Guard ship. That was kind of island hopping. You know, getting to see some wonderful places in the Caribbean um, and the US and sort of Central America and South America. It was just an awesome, awesome trip. It really, really was. And my brother served on the same ship as me. Um, and one of my school friends that, so we were really close, the three of us. Um, and our first ship was HMS Broadsword. So all three of us was on the same ship. So to go and share that experience with my brother and my best friend from school was amazing. Yeah, that's so cool. And were they in the air world as well, or did they have other jobs on board? Yeah, no, they were different. So my brother was a gunner, and Errol was a um, RP uh, radar partner. Ah, oh, great. So you still saw each other on board, but you didn't work together closely. Yeah, no, yeah, no we didn't work together closely. But again, you know, it was a broadsword was a Type Twenty Two frigate, so it was a small ship anyway. So. Uh, you know, you saw everyone at Scran, you saw everyone at the circuit, you saw everyone, you know, so yeah, it, it, we had plenty of interaction. Yeah. We were, like, we're, the, we were the Brummy Mafia. <laughs> the three of you. If, if we were the original Peaky Blinders. <laughs> really? <laughs> Raise the blades in your berries. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, he didn't mess with us. Yum, yum. Yum, yum. That's so cool. I never got to go to the West Indies. What What's the coolest place you went to then on that trip? I mean, seven and a half months, that's a long time as well. It was, but it flew by. Um, so the best, you know, the best place in, in on that trip was uh, we went to Grand Cayman and um, 
we were there for pirate week and yeah it was just amazing it was just probably the best run ashore i had in, in my whole time and i had some pretty privileged runs ashore but that one was pretty awesome in what's, fact, was, i was gonna say what's pirate time pirate week it's, it's pirate just week. A mass, yeah it's just a massive celebration that they have um in the Cayman Islands uh, based around, I, I forget the, the exact reason, but it's obviously got something to do with um, stashing pirate type, um, uh, you know, sort of treasure or whatever on the island. But, um, you know, there's big firework displays, all the yachts are out in the water, everyone's kind of, all the people are trying to get on board the other vessels. So all the yachts and everything that were there. And, uh, you had to repel your borders. So obviously we had all our fire hoses charged and everything. And if you did get on board, then, you know, it was, you gave them a drink. So uh, it was, it was great. We, you know, we let loads of people on the ship. We got to go on all these super yachts in and around Grand Cayman. It's just, it was brilliant. The spirits were so high. The firework display was great. It was just, yeah, it, it's, it's, a, as you can imagine, there's plenty of money in that place. And uh, the guys had a great time there. We were at anchor and uh, yeah, we were getting boarded left, right in Chelsea. <laughs> Amazing. And so it must have been quite hard to come home from that and come back to real life after such an epic trip. No, it was. Um, yeah, it was. Uh, it was. Um, it was. It was difficult because my um, girlfriend at the time was pregnant. Um, so I came back and then um, my son was born. I think about six to seven weeks later so it was it was quite a transition from grand you know from being in grand canaria on pirates week and uh, not grand canaria sorry grand cayman uh, and then yeah you know having your first child so because uh, i'd done a pretty much all my time at sea it was it was we were really busy actually from the you know from two from 93 to 95 we were literally at sea all the time oh and then what happened after 95? Um, so then I, I stayed in the small ship world, went back um, to uh, Portland. I went back on to 815 Squadron um, and then went away on Killock's course, came back. So 96, I tried to go for the field gun. Um, yeah. I didn't get selected because um, there was some manning clearing issues at the time where there was a few people trying to to, to sort of get away and uh, I was devastated by that because obviously to get into the field gun crew it's, it takes a lot of training doesn't it you know and it was something that I'd always wanted to do um, but I was blessed because the, the pay officer that I was working for at the time there was a signal out it was the Royal Navy's year in the Royal time in the Royal tournament that year so it was the Royal Navy's league um, and they were um, they needed people for the um, window ladder team and the math um, Ma not the mass man in window ladder team and aerobics team and um they sort of set out a criteria because of going up into the skates you had to be a certain height you know physically fit um, and my boss at the time he recommended me for it so even though i didn't get to go and do the royal tournament um as a field gunner i got to go as part of the um you know the window ladder team and i loved it it was absolutely magnificent we did three months training down in salton um, and then spent a month up in London. Um, it was great. And then back to uh, back to the air world after that. Um, and then back onto flights after that. So uh, yeah, I pretty much from '93 through to nearly 2001, 
I was on small ship flights from kind of, uh, I always seem to end up on type 22s, um, but uh, yeah, Broadsword, Campbelltown, uh, Sheffield, uh, and then Campbelltown again. Towards the end of um, 98, that's when Portland closed and that's when we started moving everything up to um, up to Yeovilton, which, mm. yeah. I was never a massive fan of Yorkton, if I'm honest with you. Just it never had the vibe that Portland did. It, it kind of killed the the Lynx community a little bit for me. But um, I did a couple more flights then as a senior rate. Um, I did 2003 um, uh, in the Gulf for um, on on Richmond for uh, for for our second foray into uh, into Iraq, which was yeah. an interesting time. Uh, and again, lots of time away um, that uh, took its toll on marriages. So I ended up getting divorced after that, um, which is unfortunate. But um, yeah, I spent more time at sea than I did at home, which was uh, unfortunate. Yeah, which which is which is weird. I mean, because I'm just thinking of flights that I've had on my on my ships, and we you only really have them for deployments. So you just assume that you know they come away for the jolly, and then they go back and say at Yeovil for, an, for 18 months until they till they go somewhere else but that's obviously not the case. I think in the good old days that's probably what did happen but um, as kind of resources um, were, were cut back uh, and you know manning began to become an issue you then instead of being a cap tallied flight when you know the ship was alongside you and went back and you know did your maintenance training all that sort of stuff you then ended up just going to a different flight. So if a ship went into refit, you just went and joined a different ship. So um, that's why it was really busy from that kind of to, you know, 98 through to about 2003 was really, really busy for me, just from mm. jumping from one ship to the next. I think we, I went through a period in probably an 18 month period where I did six months away on the Sheffield, come back for a couple of weeks, six months away on the Campbelltown and then did three months on the Richmond for uh, Optelic or literally within an 18 month period, um, which yeah, took its toll. Um, so, but I, I wasn't the only one there, you know, that, that there was lots of people in the same situation. Mm. And you said that when, when you moved out of Portland to Yeovil, it kind of killed killed it for you in what way how was it different because I've obviously never been to Portland but I have had a draft at Yeovil so I I think it was the size of Yeovil whereas like Portland you could walk around and you'd know anyone and everyone because it was just a small little base and um, you know we all kind of lived in the same sort of area whereas Yeovil was a big base you know one of the squadrons would be one side of the airfield the stores would be another side of the airfield so it didn't have the same community feel as um, uh, as Portland had. Um, I think that that was really it. it's it's like I guess it would you could liken it to living all your life in a village where you know everyone, and then you go to a city and it's getting used to not knowing where everything is or knowing where everyone is. Mm. Yeah, it's massive. You're absolutely massive, and it's it's strange because it's split in two halves as well. One side you've got some accommodation and and bits and pieces on the other side you've got the airfield I mean it took me weeks to find my find my way around and you have to drive everywhere or cycle it's not like you can just have a bimbo around yeah that was a fun part stealing bikes from everybody (laughs) (laughs) in fact I think I've left a bike there because it was so much admin I just left my bike there 
to get it back home. So you said that you were involved in the um, Intellic. Were you on? Did you say you were in Portland for that? Um, Richmond. So Richmond. Um, yeah. So I, I was. I'd just come back off um, a six-month trip in the Adriatic. Um, again, um, on um, Active Endeavour. And then when Telic was kicking off, one of the things that they realised was the, the night vision capability for the Lynx Mark III at the time was lacking. So they flew a team of engineers out um, and we, we called ourselves Op Carrot because we were going to enable them to be able to see in the dark. So our plan we was we, we took out two aircraft and we would rotate aircraft for um, teams that were already out there. So um, they would give them an aircraft that was MVG. Uh, enabled whilst we refit theirs and it was a six-week program to kind of run everything through but then they decided that they needed more platforms out there um, and they wanted to have a 24-hour um, capability on the back end of each of the vessels so they doubled up the flights um, and unfortunately for me I was in the right place at the wrong time so mm. instead of flying back um, I'd gone from a five-star golf hotel um, and, and living the dream in Bahrain for six weeks to uh, joining Sheffield, in, uh, sorry, joining Richmond. Um, I think we were there for about two and a half months. I mean, they were a great bunch and, I, and we had such a blast, but uh, yeah, um, you know, full action, messing, um, sleeping above the waterline for a few weeks. It was, a, it, was a, it was pretty intense, but I was blessed because we had a great flight, some real characters on that. Mm. And that, that was that your first 23 because you mostly had 22s or small ships. Yeah, it was, it was the first time I think I'd ever been on one, yeah. Yeah, there's always, I mean, I've only had 23s, I never served on a 22, so I think 23s are better. But other people who have only kind of had 22s and then gone on 23s think the opposite. What's your, what's your thoughts? I, I must say, I, I, I loved 22s. I think from a from a Wafu perspective, the 23 was better just because you had more space. You had a bigger hangar, you had a bigger deck. So um, it was a lot easier. But as a ship, I, I loved the 22s. I, I really, really enjoyed my time on Yeah. I'm still sticking with 23s, but <laughs> we can agree to disagree. Okay, so you're, you're a PO at this stage. That's right, yeah. Um, but you got to Chief. Yeah, so from there, um, I think I did so much time away. So it was about 2003, I went back uh, to 702 Squadron and I was the M-Trade instructor. Um, so doing all the aircrew training for the mechanical trade and, and, and sort of part four training. But I just, I think I got a bit disillusioned because I spent so much time away. Um, it ruined my marriage, which I was struggling with. So I, I, I was looking for a different direction. Um, and from my leadership courses, I, um, I, was, I got the Herbert Lott and recommended for, to go back and serve as an instructor. And um, I was fortunate enough to get a call from the warrant officer there and asked whether I'd like to join his staff at the leadership school in Collingwood. Um, so I did that um, and that was the best job that I ever did um, because that completely changed my life, not only my career, but my life. Just what I learned from a, lead a leadership perspective, spare capacity, personal development, it became a real passion of mine. Um, and that's where I got promoted chief whilst I was at the leadership school. 
Um, but I absolutely loved it. I did three years there and finished um, 2008. I finished there, but I just, I, again, it was one of them jobs. I'd probably still be there now if I could. Uh, I, again, it was just a wonderful team. We had, um, what, I, what I always say about that job, it was the best job I ever had, but in, it, it was also the worst job I ever had because nothing else ever lived up to it. it you know, no team... Um, no sort of job satisfaction ever lived up to what I was getting um, at the school. I just loved it. And what, what did you win the Herbert Lot for? So that was just um, for top student on, um, on, on a leadership course. So um, the, the, instructor, the staff would sort of um, nominate who they thought the top student was. Um, and obviously there was scoring for the various different things you do for your exams and what have you and your presentations. Um, but yeah, I was the top student on my course, and then what came with that then was a recommend to be a leadership instructor. So uh, yeah, that worked yeah. out really well for me. Yeah, no, that's amazing. I mean, I I remember my leading rates and senior rates command courses, and I do you know what? I actually, looking back, I can't really remember much of the Kidix one because um, it was just a blur and a whirlwind. But the senior rates command course is probably the best course I've ever done in the Navy. Really, really enjoyed it. But I think that was also coupled with having such an amazing group of people that I did it with. And I think that really makes the difference on those courses. Yeah. I think that's why I enjoyed it so much. There was a couple of things you'd have someone, you know, because you, you remember when you, you went in, one of the first things you're asked to do is just stand up and give an introduction as to who you are. Well, you would think that would be quite easy because you know you better than anyone else. But you'd have people who, who would stand up and couldn't even tell the, the, the group who they were, you know, through nerves. And no one likes public speaking, or not everyone likes public speaking. But you'd see that sort of transition and growth over a, such a short space of time as well. And these were all people from different units, you know, some submariners, some nurses. So a real blend of capabilities and strengths and fitness. But to see the way they gelled as a team, to see the camaraderie that could be built in such a short space of time, but then see that person who couldn't give an introduction on day one, give a 20 minute presentation, you know, for, um, you, know, the, you know, it might be like the major exercise at the end of it. So a full command brief or whether it's a presentation on a given subject it was just, yeah, you know, those times that nearly moved me to tears where you just see such a massive improvement in somebody then, you know, yeah. I actually met a lad, um, at the, it's dit on, so I can spin a dick, can't I? Um, there was, whilst I was still at the school, there was a young chef that was on the course, and um, he was such a lovely lad, but he just couldn't get it. Um, and it turned out, you know, we gave him a couple of counselling sessions, and he ended up failing the course. But he had a few problems at home, and I just gave him some, um, you know, some advice on, on on what he could be and how he could be, and um, he he actually made it to as far along as the course so we did all the kind of Earl Stoke pieces so we mm -hmm. did all the the command training thing where you really push people for spare capacity and stuff like that and I was in um um Chicago's the bar in um Fairham um one evening and they they were doing that pop idol thing and um they were doing kind of the selection so it starts at like a lower level and then it was they were running kind of um, a selection night at uh, Chicago's and a guy got up and he sung a couple of Frank Sinatra type songs in a um, tuxedo and everything 
Uh, and I never really thought much to it. And then I was at the bar later and I got a, top, a tap on the shoulder and it was this young chef. And I couldn't believe it because one, when I met him, he couldn't even bloody stand up in front of anyone because half of his problem is he couldn't um, communicate very well. He couldn't stand in front of people. He couldn't really communicate what he wanted people to do. And yet he was able to stand up and he was the Frank Sinatra singer. Um, so that was that in front of a packed club. But then also, um, I just asked him how he was, and he said, well, I left the Navy um, actually not long after the leadership course. He said, but I took on board everything you said about spare capacity and what I could be. And I started up my own um, kitchen design and fitting company. Oh, wow. He said, and this was the real kicker. He says, I'm now making £42,000 a month, and it's all down to you. Do you want a pint, P.O.? <laughs> I was like, wow, brilliant. So that 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 was one of my fondest memories, but it just goes to show you don't know what influence you can have on somebody, but um, one, to see him up there so confident and so happy in himself, but two, to see the, the um, success he was creating in his life was just, yeah, one of the most rewarding things ever, I think. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. From one point, by the way. You did take a pint off him. I more than one. Oh. More than one. If yeah, he's well, earning forty-two grand, I'm I'm quite happy to take a couple off him. I yeah. was on not even a fraction of that over a month. So <laughs> absolutely, I'll have a pint of vodka. <laughs> exactly, but yeah, no, great. It, it was just such a um, heartwarming type of one of them things that don't happen every day. You know? Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. So it must have been hard to leave the leadership school then when your uh, assignment order came in to go somewhere else. How did you feel? Um, well, actually, the, the, the job I went into, I loved as well, but not quite the same. So um, I was asked to go and take over the regulator's job at Salton um, at the Air Engineering Training School um, and my clear remit from um, my boss. And again, you know, he was a really inspirational guy as well, because the commander of the school at the time was my first SMR on my first ever flight. So he was part and part of, parcel of the reason for me, um, you know, deciding to have my CW papers raised and, and go officer myself. But um, it was him who asked me to join the school um, and start getting a grip of some of the sort of discipline issues that they were having. Um, and so I was more than happy to get involved in that. And so I spent just shy of three years there. Um, in fact, till I got selected um, and passed my sort of AIB there. Um, and uh, yeah, but I had a great time there as well. Um, great staff, you know, really enjoyed it. I think I had a reputation for being a bit of a monster, but if people got to know me, I wasn't too bad. <laughs> and when you say di discipline issues, can you shed any more light on that? Yeah, I think it was the Navy was going through and, I, and I'd witnessed this as well when um, I was at the leadership school. I think the Navy was going through this kind of um, they, they were trying there, there was a big change in the way leadership um, was thought about. We'd gone from this kind of dictatorial type leadership to more of a um, coaching and mentoring footing. But it was finding the balance between um, you know, giving a little to the, you know, because the generation that was joining, you, you've got to change your leadership approach for the generations that join, you know, you, you've got to kind of map it across to their experience in school. Um, and so I would say it was a, 
I wouldn't say it was soft leadership. I just think the soft skills were different. And I think what we were doing then, when we joined, it was like you'd have rounds every night. You know, you, you'd have to wear a certain rig every night. You know, it was very, very different. And I think because we gave more, people took more. So, you know, they, there was lots of, um, you know, drink related issues. Um, lots of people turning up late, haircuts, you know, but not shaven it just people just pushing the the, the the kind of boundaries a little bit um so it, it was just at a time of change i think and i think that it was trying to understand how we manage that change from a leadership perspective so uh, yeah it was it was an interesting time a really interesting time hmm. and as you said you popped across the road to do your aib as well how did you find that yeah it was um it was it was interesting um like i say it, you, you kind of i think it's like it's like most things and it's like chinese whispers where you 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 think oh guys this thing's going to be such a difficult you know it's gonna be the toughest thing i ever do and actually when i did it i was a bit oh it's nowhere near as bad as i thought you know i thought the staff would be awful i thought the whole process would be people shouting at you and it wasn't like that at all you know the ai the aib staff were wonderful you know they they put you at ease um i felt the whole process was just really well run and and yeah i <laughs> i came away from it just thinking is there is there something more uh, have i missed something you know i'm not saying it wasn't challenging it just wasn't what i expected the staff were great they mm. just outing at me no one was putting me under pressure you know they were really super helpful you know I think all the pressure for AIB was self-induced 100 percent yeah I agree and it's the it's the horror stories as well that people tell you as well because I had like a mix it was half the people saying oh it's nowhere near as bad as you think it's going to be just try and relax but then other people playing it up as you know being really difficult and they were, you're always being watched and for just from saying that I think you put so much more pressure on yourself and blow it up in your own mind yeah. and i think that was you know if i go back to the leadership school that was exactly the same problem with the leadership school it was people would always exaggerate and, and make it far worse so you know you'd have people turn up at leadership school and obviously the first thing you do there is your mile and a half but people would turn up having not slept the night before through worry not had breakfast through worry and then, you know, you expect them to go and perform their, you know, their physical fitness test and they've not eaten, not sleep, not slept. And then, you know, they don't perform as well as they should have, you know, and some of them then will return to unit without even getting onto the course. So mm. that changed, you know, we, we, we changed that whilst we were there and they are, you know, I, I forget what the figures were, but let's say, you know, it was in the high sort of 70% where people who failed their mile and a half run uh, on uh, day one they would get an opportunity to run it in the second week and they passed it with flying colors just because it was a mindset thing you know they they were so concerned and so worried about joining this course through dits and poor dits that um it, it actually ruined it for them so that was one of the, the you know going back to the school you were changing things you were you were identifying how people were failing why they were failing and actually beginning to understand that you know we could we could make a change and it didn't mean that they were bad leaders it just meant we had to change our sort of 
approach to kind of training and leadership training. So um, yeah, that, that's why I think I really enjoyed the leadership school because I, I happened to be there at a really good time when we were going into this more coaching and mentoring kind of focus. Yeah. And is that what drove, drove you to want to be, um, to, to go to Dartmouth and become an officer, get your commission or was something else the driver for that? It was twofold, really. Um, so one, I was a bit of a nugget at school. So I, I left school with no education whatsoever. So how I got into the Navy is beyond me. Um, so I never really had the education to, to become an officer. So um, whilst I was at Salton, I, I, I did all my GCSEs and I did a degree all in like 18 months. Oh, wow. um, proved to myself that I had the the intellect to be able to do it and I guess it was kind of the next thing for me just to sort of say well I'll or if I if I leave and I never have a go I'll always be left wondering um so I I did it um passed it and and so yeah so and again it was part and parcel of that leadership journey because I kept telling younger people to believe in themselves and to push themselves um, and then afterwards, that's what I did. I started to try and push myself and keep pushing myself. Um, and like I said, I completely re-educated myself and did my AIB all in two years mm. and held down the job that was pretty high pressure as well. And then obviously you told off to Dartmouth. Yeah, so I, I, I actually um, went to, back to 702 Squadron, did a short bit of time on 702 Squadron as the Hangar Services Chief whilst I waited for my date for Dartmouth and then joined Dartmouth um, um, to late 2010. And did you go through the senior upper yardy route? Yeah. So how long did you go? Did you have to go to Dartmouth for? Um, that's embarrassing. I think it was about six weeks, six or seven weeks. Yeah. Uh, and I would just say that it wasn't the most challenging six or seven weeks. It was more... And, and again, you know, I think everyone realised, you know, when when you, you have, like I had a young lieutenant um, who'd been in the Navy like, I think, five years teaching me leadership, um, you know, and, and uh, you know, that, that was difficult for him um, because within my class, I mean, there were warrant officers with longer service than me um, and, and some, you know, people with impressive backgrounds. Um, so... It was it was difficult for them to to kind of teach from a um, you know a book if you like um, it was too scripted and, and too easy to to unpick so you kind of just got left alone a little bit but mm. uh, I loved Dartmouth actually I um, again you know it sounds like I had to I just, I just think I was blessed everywhere I went I I just had such a good time but I think a lot of it is what you make of it as well um, you know I made some great friends at Dartmouth and enjoyed the whole experience. And did you, did you learn to drive the picket boat? We didn't do any of that, actually. So, yeah, we didn't do any of the seamanship piece at all. Um, so the, um, the way, because I think it used to be a 10-week course, didn't it? And you used to have the exercise down on the river. Mm -hmm. We didn't do that. Um, we didn't do any of the, the boat driving or any of the exercise on the river. They cut it down. It was either 10 or 11 weeks. I forget what it was. But as was the, the shorter course that they did yeah and i don't know the reason behind that i'm assuming it was money but i don't really know why they cut it probably yeah maybe well i did i did the seven weeks as well but i we learned to drive the picket boats um oh. 
and that was probably one of my one of my favorite things although I've obviously never gotten one since and absolutely wouldn't because there's no way I should have passed that because <laughs> I cannot drive a pig boat but yeah we did it it was so it was great being down on the river but we never did the exercise but we were there when the cadets were doing it um and saw them all running around and stuff which was pretty cool but one thing that I really really loved about Dartmouth I don't know if it's the same for you is the um kind of naval history lessons that we used to have um with the historians there I mean well there may be but I can't remember anything like that at rally the PO may have got up and give a PowerPoint presentation for half an hour but the the in-depth presentations that we had over the seven weeks of basically from the beginning of time to current day of the Royal Navy was so interesting. Did you have that too? No, I did, and and, and I agree with you. I absolutely loved that that aspect, and 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 the same for me. I don't recall that you know any part of my training we went into that sort of depth because it really does give you that esprit de corps type feel, doesn't it? That you belong to something greater than yourself. So um, no, I, I, I must admit that was probably one of my favorite parts as well. And learning how to eat properly with a knife and fork. Mm. Um, yeah, I never knew which way to set up a table when I was uh, when I was a rating. So at least I, I knew how to set a table up properly. <laughs> that, that's the, uh, that was my key takeaway from my training at Dartmouth. Yeah, how to set your knives and forks. Did you have a practice mess dinner as well? Practice how to attend a mess dinner? Yeah, so that was an interesting one as well because my commanding officer on um, uh, HMS Sheffield was the Commodore um, of the uh, of, of the RNT at the time. And when I was on Sheffield, you know, I was, yeah, I was a bit of a rogue on there as a PO and I had two rebukes from um, the, the commanding officer, the Sheffield at the time, um, and then I was selected to because one of the SUYs get selected to host the commanding officer, don't they? So when I met him and he looked at me, his words were, "What the f are you doing here?" <laughs> I was like, "Well, you know, <laughs> things change." You know, oh. so we yeah, we had a wonderful evening talking about all sorts. But uh, yeah, he said, you know. He would never, ever have thought that I'd have become an officer. Really? <laughs> so not quite sure how to have taken that, but it was, yeah, it was, um, it was quite funny. How times change, and you chose intelligence as well, as opposed yeah. to air engineering. How come? Um, I, th I think the it, it was down to the strategic defence review. Um, you know, the air, it was fair to say that the fleet air arm. Oh, Naval Air Command got quite a beating in 2010, 2011. Um, and the, things were changing as well with, um, you know, just the, the way the branch was, all the branches were being structured. There was a lot of disharmony and, and I just didn't, I, I'd had such a wonderful career to that point. I, I could see a lot of people were getting a little bit sort of fed up. There was lots of grumblings and it, it felt almost like a, a a negativity cancer for a want of a better way of describing it and I didn't really want to be involved in it so when they set up the new um, intelligence branch um, it just sounded super excited and I thought I'd be like James Bond um, <laughs> I thought that'll do for me I'll have a go with that um, so yeah that, that was the reason really I just think it was a timing thing I think um, the fleet air arm was in a bit of a bad place for, for a little while whilst that strategic defence review 
kind of shook through. You know, that's when the Harriers were all going and you had a lot of the disgruntled Zoomies working on rotary wing aircraft and they didn't really want to be there. That's not what they joined for. And, and when you're managing those people, it's difficult because, you know, you always want to carry the command expectations and, and do as you're told, but, you know, you did feel for them, you know, and, and, and it was just a difficult time. So yeah, that, that's a lot of the reason why I chose the in branch, just, just for something new and something exciting. Mm. And, and were you like James Bond? Did it live up to your expectations? Um, I tell everyone that it did, and I played the part superbly well. Fortunately, I was never suave enough to be James Bond, not with a brummy accent. Um, <laughs> I couldn't quite pull it off. Um, but no, I, I had some wonderful, wonderful jobs, and, and I loved it. Um, my sort of first job was um, part of the um, Defence Olympic Intelligence Team in Mod Main in Whitehall. And so, you know, I found myself working across the agencies, briefing in Cobra, working down in Pindar. I was way out of my depth. And I remember wow. my boss at the end branch at the time saying to me, you'll be all right. You're an SUY, just blag it. And I'm down in Pindar with career intelligence officers and people from Thames House, all giving their sort of take on things. I'm thinking, crikey, you know, Four months ago, I was a chief petty officer at Wafu on 702 Squadron. <laughs> and now, you know, you're in the same sort of Cobra briefing room as as the foreign um, home secretary then was Theresa May. And so she quite often chaired the meetings we were at. And it was just such a steep learning curve, but uh, super cool. It was really cool. And the Olympics were great, um, you know, great time for um, service people because um, you know, th there was a huge foopar made by the government in the underestimation of the security, the safety and security of the Olympics were assured by T Theresa May, and they had like a an eighteen and a half thousand shortfall on the sort of security personnel that they needed, and that's when they dragged in all the um, armed forces personnel yeah. to kind of fill those gaps. Um, but the public really embraced the armed forces, you know, and it kind of elevated us to a status kind of, I, 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 it was never something I'd experienced before, you know, I'd walk through because we traveled in uniform and we did everything in uniform. And, you know, I'd, I'd go to Waterloo Station to, to catch the train home and people would be shaking your hand and thank you for your service and all that. And I'm thinking, crikey, you know, we've been literally at war since 1990 and no one has ever said thank you to me before, you know, but you got all these guys in Afghanistan and Iraq and, you know, Kosovo and Yugoslavia and Ireland and, you know, all the other conflicts. And that, you know, it took the Olympics for people to start saying thank you, mm. <laughs> you know, or even acknowledging you. So I, I really enjoyed that period of time. That, that was great. Um, and like I say, did get to work with, you know, and meet people who really could sort of claim to be more James Bondy than me. <laughs> claim to be. <laughs> and then from there, is that from there you went to Bahrain? Yeah, so I, I went there to join the Coalition Maritime Forces, the, the kind of um, lead for the team there. And again, that was great, leading a, a multinational team, you know, I had Pakistanis uh, who couldn't speak English, I had um, Canadians, I had Saudis, um, 
I had Italians, I had Dutch, you know, all in my team, Norwegians. And, and they were such a wonderful bunch because, you know, we, we sort of, I created this thing where I said like, you know, every, because the weekend's slightly different there. So every Thursday night was the beginning of the weekend. Um, so I created this thing where, you know, each nation had to host a Thursday evening and we had to eat their food and we had to sort of, you know, learn something about their culture. Um, and it was really cool. Um, and actually, the two Pakistani guys um, were really quite standoffish at first. They didn't really get involved, um, but I made them do it first. Um, and they brought their Pakistani commander in uh, and his wife and daughter um, were there with him as well. And, and he actually hosted the evening at his apartment. And, and it was just, it was great. It was just great because it broke down all barriers, you mm. know, it wasn't about officers and it wasn't about nationalities. It was just about us all being friends and learning about each other. Um, and so, yeah, that was great. I really enjoyed that time. I was there, I was there for seven months and um, I, I also built up a great rapport with the US um, Fifth Fleet team there, the intelligence team there, um, and a new position. So I went um, back home, but a new position opened up on the watch floor and they asked whether I'd come back and... Um, and work within the mock watch floor within Fifth Fleet. Um, so I wasn't too sure it was a good idea, but I went anyway, and um, and it was great. I ended up doing 14 months in that job. Um, wow. And that's where Kate and I met, actually. So my wife and I met there. Um, and, yeah, it was awesome. Um, and, you know, my life has really just kept going upwards and upwards from that moment on, really. Um, the people and the friends that I made there were, were, were magnificent. It was just a great time. Really yeah. good time. I was going to ask, that's pro I was going to ask if that's where you met Kate, because Kate was in the, was she the US Navy? She was part of, she was um, the National Geospatial um, Agency. She was there, uh, the representative within Fifth Fleet. So she was government. So she was a civilian within um, NGA. Oh, wow. And at what point, because you obviously co-own you're both co-founders of your company, Duralect. At what point did you start thinking about f forming that? Um, it wasn't until a little while, because I, I came back then from Bahrain and I went to Commander Helicopter Force. So um, Kate stayed out in, um, in Bahrain for a little while after me. Um, I came back and went to CHF and I was there for two and a half years. And it was only really there that you know, because Kate then went back to the US and um, NGA back in, um, in in Virginia. And it was only there that we started talking about, well, you know, where does the relationship go from here? Um, because obviously the US and the UK, there's quite some distance. And um, so uh, we started talking more then about, you know, should we get married? You know, do you want to come over here? Should we go over there? So I actually proposed to her whilst I was on um, Cougar. Uh, on um, HMS Bulwark and it, it wasn't the most romantic at, at all it was kind of we were having a conversation as you do I was just outside the wardroom and uh, I said well we're going to get married anyway so um, I've got some leave coming up why don't I just fly over we'll get married and then we can move over and we'll do and it was just all kind of very matter of fact and mm. um, um, but the, the good thing was uh, so, and that would have given us kind of I think about five weeks to plan it because that's when the leave was so Kate told her parents I phoned her dad first and 
sort of asked if it was okay and if he, you know, he, so Kate's dad was the former director of uh, NCIS. So, you know, I always felt very kind of um, in awe of, yeah. wow. of what he had achieved. And I mean, that's equivalent to like a three star. So I kind of felt that I should do things properly and not get on the wrong side of him, especially as I was still serving. I didn't know how far his network reached into our Navy. Um, but uh, yeah, so then Kate told her parents, but obviously her dad already knew. Um, and her mom just took control and said, right, you're not getting married in a, in a sort of registry office type affair. Uh, and we had this wonderful wedding in Virginia. Uh, and Kate came over in 2016 um, when I just joined 77 Brigade then. Um, and I joined there because I thought, well, um, I wanted to, one of the things that Kate and I was doing in, in, the, um, in Bahrain, they were looking at this activities-based intelligence. So it was like a new approach to data and, and you bring, bringing in data science and that how you could automate data processing um, to, to kind of derive more real-time um, insights in a, in a geospatial context, so in a space and time. And I thought that was really exciting. And then when I went to CHF, it kind of didn't really live up to that tech type, you know, going back to my James Bond desire, I wanted to be at the front end of like Gucci products that, you know, a bit like the Manilochty report and stuff like that, where you're swiping things in and you're in front of all these major displays, watching people and doing things. So um, when 77 Brigade kind of set up and they were looking for people to go into that kind of psyops and info ops world, um, I volunteered for that. But um, yeah, I was a bit disappointed to say the least. Um, and Kate was over here um, working for a, um, a remote sensing company in, uh, in Oxford. And that's where it really started because mm. I, I was basically saying, you know, look at all the great stuff that we were doing in, um, in, in Bahrain. And I, I look at the things that we could be doing, but no one's really doing it. No one's really taken geospatial intelligence into the commercial sector and I think we could do it um, and that was it really it was it was a couple of glasses of wine and we just the more we talked about it the more we thought come on let's just do it um, so we both put our notice in and we both left and we set up Geolect in 2017 and so far we need to touch some wood I'll touch it's, some wood it's it's just been great I mean we've got a team of 22 people now um, We've got a, a company, you know, an LLC in the US. We just took on our managing director four weeks ago. Um, you know, and it's just, yeah, you know, if you'd have said that to me, you know, 10 years ago, I would never have believed you. It's just been that, just keep pushing yourself, just keep pushing yourself and, and backing yourself. And that's all come from really the leadership school and my experience in the Navy is that being given the opportunity to achieve. So re-educate myself and, go and do your AIB, get selected as an officer. It's, you know, you, you, you're given an environment to prove yourself. It's then up to you whether you go and take it. It's the same for you, you know, you did exactly the same thing. You know, you get that opportunity and it's whether you back yourself or not to take it. And I think that that, that was it for me. It was just age was a big factor for me as well because I, I felt, you know, do I stay in the Navy? Because at that time I would have been 40 odd and um you know and it was that kind of well i could probably make two and a half and that's probably it for me so i'm kind of as an su why i was getting that sort of pay anyway 
and I was getting that kind of level of responsibility, how much further could I push myself realistically in 10 years? Because it, it was, I'm not so sure that I would ever have made commander um, just because of age and, and opportunity. So I just wanted to go and prove myself, you know, again, to show that I've got the capacity to be more. Mm. Um, and, that, and thankfully it's working. Yeah, they, honestly, which is such a remarkable story and it's so, so inspiring. And just to learn how you've like developed over the years as well, like you say, being a bit of a rogue in the younger days, but then at the leadership school, something clicked and you've literally just gone from strength to strength since then. Yeah, and I think that's the thing. I spend all my time, you know, I, I really do. I answer every single message I get from anyone serving and, and ex-serving on LinkedIn and, and anyone who reaches out to me. But it's kind of, you know, I, I was nothing, you know, I'm not saying I was nothing, you know, but I was I was a bit of a naughty person. You know, I had lots of issues. Kate's my third wife. You know, I haven't been a an angel by any stretch of the imagination, both behaviorally or morally. But, you, you know, age 38 was like a turning point for me. And it was like, you know, I've been saying all through this leadership kind of three year period, I kept telling people to be better, to push themselves. And I wasn't doing it myself mm. um, and I wasn't living that way. And, and I just, something just clicked. Um, and it just, all, it almost becomes a, I don't know, a habit, if you like, you know, where you, you constantly are pushing yourself. You think, well, I, well, I've got to this, you know, I've done my GCSEs. What can I do now? I'll do a degree. I've done a degree. What can I do now? And it's that, you know, yeah. I think it's just setting yourself mini goals because I wouldn't say they were great big goals, but you know, over the, over the last decade, you know, I think I've achieved more in the last ten years than I achieved in the previous forty years of my life. <laughs> it sounds like you've changed your mindset. You completely shifted your mindset to work in a different way. Yeah, no, it is, and I think it's just being content with who you are as well. I think I don't think I really knew who I was. You know, um, I think. I, in the in the military and I don't know whether you had this yourself you know you, you, you're bouncing from one ship to another from one command to another from one job to another and you don't really know who you are you don't always really settle you know and, and I think I just happened to be in the navy in a really busy time you know we were away a lot there was a lot going on but the problem was the resources were getting drawn back I mean, with Afghanistan and and, you know, it started really with Yugoslavia and Kosovo. We were always in, in fact, it started really with Desert Storm. They were always very much land-based. I mean, the, prop, the last real thing we did as a Navy was the Falklands, and we lived off that for a while. But then, you know, we got hurt for all the land-based operations, and it felt like the Navy were always losing their um, resource. But the commitments were always the same. Mm. You know, there were still the Falklands, there were still the West Indies, there were still the Middle East. You know, all these sort of commitments were still there with less ships. So you just spent more time away. And I think I kind of just lost myself for a few years. Um, and yeah, I think the leadership school helped me to find myself and believe in myself as well. Because I think because I was a bit of a rogue, people always told me I wouldn't be anything. And I think that drove me then, because I think I got fed up of it by the time I was 38, of being told that I need to grow up and I'll never be anything. So I thought, all right, well, I've made PO at age 38. That's not bad. I thought I wouldn't even make that. So um, I kind of then, I almost just got fed up of the negativity that I had. Um, and it was just my way of kicking back a little bit, I guess. Yeah. 
in in the best way possible i mean you've done amazing oh, yeah <laughs> it's remarkable well richard i know i know that we're out of time but it's been so amazing to talk to you tonight um and we'll keep in touch because i love watching uh the updates from you and kate on linkedin for what geoelect are up to um and hopefully one day we will get to see each other again soon Definitely. I mean, um, I owe you a beer. Um, this has been great. <laughs> Thanks for your time. Um, and like I say, you know, my, my parting message is if, if anyone wants to, to reach out and, um, you know, have a chat about what I think about leaving the service and, you know, anything around that personal development thing, I'm, I'm more than happy to, uh, to, to, to give my time to any veteran or serving person to, to kind of just share my story, if you like. And if it inspires, that's wonderful but um you know we're all here for each other that's the whole idea of it isn't it oh absolutely we're a community thank you richard take care awesome take care thanks jenna bye bye